Karl Barth, the eminent theologian, was once asked to sum up the essence of the scriptures, the essence of the Bible. And this eminent theologian said this. He said the essence of the scripture is contained in this phrase, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is why John 3.16, the verse that we all know by heart, says, For God so loved the world, so loved the world. That word so tells about the intensity of that love, the extent of that love. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As you come here this morning, my dear brother, And my dear sister, I wonder if you know in your heart how much this Heavenly Father loves you. A love that never ends. A love that never fails. If this is truly the love of God for you and for me, then a question should emerge in your mind and mine. If God really loves us to this extent, a love that never ends, a love that never fails, a love so much so that he gave his only begotten son to die for you and for me upon the cross of Calvary. If he loves us to that extent, then a question should emerge in your mind and mine. And the question is this. If God loves you and God loves me to that extent, then why don't we respond accordingly to his love? Why do you and I not respond with a greater sense of intensity to know him in a deeper way? Why do you and I not respond with a greater sense of longing to walk with this Savior, with this Master, every day of our lives, cherishing His love, abounding love that never ends? You see, there are certain things in your life and mine. More accurately, there are certain dispositions that are found in your life and mine. There are obstacles to our experience this abundant love of Christ in our lives. And this morning as we've gathered here, I want to place before you four such dispositions that can be found in your life and mine that keep us from responding to Christ accordingly. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 48. The Gospel of John. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 48. It's a very familiar passage. I'm sure you've read it numerous times, and you've probably heard many sermons on this passage. And I'm not going to be reading it to you, but I want you to keep your finger in that particular portion of the Bible because I'll be making constant references to it. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 48. It's a conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. You see, Jesus had 132 conversations with various people in various places throughout the Gospels. And this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus had with anyone. The conversation he had with the Samaritan woman by the well. And it's a very familiar passage. We know the story. Jesus is sitting by the well. The Samaritan woman comes there to draw water from it. And he immediately engages her in a conversation. A very simple yet significant and profound conversation. Jesus looks at her and he asks her for a drink. And immediately, the Samaritan woman 
responds to him. And I want you to notice particularly her responses to him and the ways in which she addresses him because in many ways it parallels our responses to Christ when he approaches us, when he tries to engage us in a life-transforming, life-changing conversation. And so please look at your Bibles. Jesus asks her for a drink, and immediately she responds by saying, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. Why then, why then are you asking me for a drink? You see, by calling him a Jew, she categorized him and tried to keep him out. By calling him a Jew, she categorized him and tried to keep him out. Jesus, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. Jesus, don't you know the difference? You have your space and I have mine. You have your boundaries and I have mine. You have your categories and I have mine. Jesus, know the boundaries. Don't you dare transgress the boundaries between us. Jesus, you have your sphere of influence and I have mine. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying to him, Jesus, I've yielded enough of my life to you. There are enough areas and enough dimensions and enough arenas of my life that I've yielded to you, but there are certain areas of my life where I want to reserve my autonomy. Let me live my life the way I want to live. Jesus, stay out of my affairs. She categorized him and kept him out. We categorize him in our own lives, don't we? And we try to keep him out. Jesus, know your boundaries. Jesus, know the dimensions in which you work. Jesus, know your space. Keep out of my life. Know your boundaries. Don't you dare transgress the boundaries. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. Why then are you asking me? We try to categorize him and keep him out. But such is the graciousness of God that he continues, that he continues to lovingly intervene in our lives over and over again. And he intervenes in the most inconceivable and impossible of ways. Bruce Larson remarked many years ago that the life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, the virgin's womb and the empty tomb. The virgin's womb and the empty tomb. You see, Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and he left through a door marked no exit. Can you ever categorize him and keep him out? James Stewart, the Scottish theologian, said, There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. But as the world really understood who he was and what he did, have you and I really understood in our own lives who he is and what he wants to do in and through us? J.B. Phillips in his book, Your God is Too Small, writes the following. He says the Jews tried to keep Christ contained within their law. The Greeks sought to turn him into a philosophy. The Romans made an empire of him. The Europeans reduced him to a culture. And we Americans have made a business of him. You see, God may thunder his commands from Mount Sinai, and men may hear it and fear, yet remain at heart exactly as they were before. But let a man once see his God down in the arena, tried, tempted, and finally dying a criminal's death, and he is a hard man indeed who is untouched by it. You see, if you and I were worshiping a God, 
who was up there in the heavenlies. If he was only a celestial being, then we could categorize him and keep him out. But my brother, my dear sister, you and I worship a God, a God who became man, the creator who became the redeemer, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Can you ever categorize him and keep him out? The one who broke all boundaries and barriers. The one who came through all obstacles in order to redeem you and to redeem me. Can you ever categorize him and keep him out? Dr. Maxwell Maltz tells a remarkable story of a young man who tried to save his elderly parents from a burning house. His parents perished, and in the process, he was badly burned from head to toe completely burned beyond recognition. And he was so distraught, so upset, so angry with everyone, with God and with the world that he discontinued his relationship with everyone, including his own wife. His wife lovingly tried all that she could to assure him of her undying love for him over and over again, but he just wouldn't listen. He didn't want anything to do with her. Finally, out of a sense of desperation, the wife began to look for the best cosmetic surgeons all over the country, and she finally found Dr. Maltz, one of the best cosmetic surgeons of that time. And she invited the good doctor over to her home to try to meet with her husband, but he just wouldn't listen. She tried over and over again, and nothing worked. She couldn't convince her husband. One day, she went over to the doctor's office. Dr. Maltz looked at his wife and looked at the wife of the husband that he was trying to help, and he was wondering why she was there. They had tried everything. Her husband just didn't want to listen. And she asked her to come in, and she asked her to sit down. The wife looked at the good doctor, and she said, Doctor, I have finally figured it out. I have finally figured out how to enter my husband's pain. I have finally figured out how to enter my husband's sorrow. I finally figured out how to enter his brokenness. I have finally figured out how to reestablish my broken relationship with him. And then she looked at the doctor right into his eyes and she said, Doctor, doctor, please disfigure me. Disfigure me so I can enter his sorrow, so I can enter his pain, so I can enter his agony, so I can reestablish my relationship with my husband. Doctor, disfigure me. When Jesus saw a darkened and a broken and a crippled and a ruined and a disfigured world, he said to the Father, Father, disfigure me. Disfigure me so I can reestablish my relationship with my sons and my daughters who are lost in this world absolute power and awesome glory and divinity reduced to humanity and humility as he took upon himself our face and our disfigurement let me ask you again can you ever categorize the savior and keep him out but we continue to categorize him we continue to categorize him in our lives don't we she said you are a Jew I am a Samaritan. Why then are you asking me for a drink? By calling him a Jew, she categorized him and tried to keep him out. Please look at your Bibles again. They continue to converse 
And now she addresses him again. And this time she addresses him as sir. She addresses him as sir. She called him a Jew and she categorized him. She addressed him as sir and she moralized him. She moralized him. They were together on a lonely hillside. He was a man, she was a woman. And he had treated her with dignity and with respect. Better than any man had ever treated her in her life. And she immediately saw him as a moral man, as a moral teacher. That term, sir, has moral connotations. She saw him in purely moral dimensions. We do that in our own lives, don't we? We see Christ as a good moral man, as a good moral teacher. We see Christianity, we see our faith, we see our spiritual walk as a list of do's and don'ts, as a moral code, and we see our faith in purely moral terms. But you see, Jesus ultimately wanted to talk to her about living waters that flow from a river that will never run dry. He was concerned about more than mere morality. He was concerned about the spiritual renewal that she needed in her life. You see, a moral life does not lead to spiritual transformation. But spiritual transformation and regeneration will inevitably lead to a moral life individually and collectively as a society. It takes the inner spiritual transformation that you and I desperately need in our lives to bring about change within our own lives and in society as a whole. C.S. Lewis in one of his books writes that whenever you see a ship out there on the high seas, there are three questions that need to be asked. First and foremost, how do you keep the ship from sinking? That's personal ethics. Secondly, how do you keep the ship from bumping into other ships? That's social ethics. But then Lewis says, the most important and the most fundamental question that needs to be asked is this, why is the ship out there in the first place? You see, there is a deeper level of existence than mere morality. And God is concerned about regenerating us in our hearts and in our minds, changing us from the inside out, making us new creatures in and through him. You see, people may talk about racial issues and cultural issues and economic issues and social issues. And we hear about all these issues, especially during this election season. All of these issues are very important issues that you and I need to address, that the church needs to address. But the basic fundamental issue, that which breaks us at the deepest levels of conscience and common sense, the problem is still sin and the answer is still found only in Christ. The problem is not that we are bad. The problem is that we are dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. And God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. For he not only has life-giving power, he has resurrection power. David Brainerd, the great missionary, once said, Infinite pity touched the heart of the Father of mercies, and infinite wisdom laid the plan of our recovery. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish poet and philosopher, once said, 
Do you think it's a great thing for God to create the universe out of nothing? I'll tell you a greater thing that he does. I'll tell you a greater thing that he does. He creates saints out of sinners. That's greater than creating the universe out of nothing. He creates saints out of sinners. A young man came to his pastor and said, Pastor, I understand that God loves me, that he loves me with an everlasting love, but please explain this to me. This is the part that I don't understand. How could a God who is so righteous, a God who is so holy, love a sinner like me? I cannot comprehend that. I cannot understand that. Can you explain it to me? The pastor said, let me explain it this way. You see, God holds each one of us by a string. And when we sin, we cut off that string. And God graciously and gently ties a knot, pulling us a little closer to him. As we continue to sin, we keep cutting off that string. And God graciously and gently and lovingly ties a knot over and over again, pulling us closer and closer to him till we touch his very heart. That's the kind of God who can forgive you of all your sins and love you with an everlasting love. A God who loves us, a God who cares about us, a God who gave himself for you and for me. The Bible is ultimately one long love letter from God to you and to me. Because he wants to restore the very image that has been marred by sin and the consequences of sin. The very image of God that has been marred by sin and the consequences of sin. You see, when Jesus was with the crowds, they asked him a question. Should we pay, to, pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? Jesus said, give me a coin. They gave him a coin. He asked them, whose image do you see on the coin? They said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, reflected on this particular portion of scripture and he said the crowds should have asked a follow-up question and that question should have been this what should we render unto God and Jesus would have asked them whose image is on you we render ourselves to God and God wants to bring about that spiritual renewal and the transformation that you and I so desperately need but we continue to see him in purely moral terms, as a moral man. And we continue to see our faith as a list of moral codes. She called him a Jew, and she categorized him. She called him sir, and she moralized him. And then as you read on, the conversation continues, and she addresses him as a prophet. She addressed him as a prophet, and she rationalized him. She rationalized him. They had been conversing for a while. And this Samaritan woman forms in her mind an image of who she thinks Christ is. She tries to begin to put the pieces together. And she tries to contain who God is and who Christ is. This person who is talking to her within the functions of her cognitive capacities. And she ends up putting God in a box. She ends up trying to comprehensively understand him and understand his ways and what his agenda was. 
through the limitations of her mind and her mental capacities. You and I do that in our own lives, don't we? We try to figure out God. We try to figure out what he's up to, what his agenda is, what he wants to accomplish. We try to know him in a comprehensive way. We try to have a God's eye perspective of things and we end up putting God in a box. Please don't get me wrong. I don't want you to misunderstand me. We do have a rational faith. There is a cognitive dimension to our faith, but there is a difference between having a rational faith and rationalizing the faith. We have a rational faith because the Bible, above all things, is a very unique book. One of the most unique books in the ancient world. It's a very unique book. 66 books written by 40 authors over a span of 1,400 years. And the Bible begins with the phrase, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, there were many people, especially intellectuals in academia, who believed that that phrase could not be sustained from a cognitive or a rational or intellectual standpoint. Because they believed that the cosmos came into being by chance. Time plus matter plus chance. In fact, Sir Frederick Hoyle and Chandra Vikraman Singh, who used to teach at Cambridge University, both jointly eminent scientists who influenced others along the way, they said that the universe came about by chance, time plus matter plus chance. And you know what they did? They went about calculating what that probability might be, the mathematical probability, probability of the universe coming about by chance. And you know what they calculated? It amounts to this. It's 1 in 10 to the 40,000th. 40,000th power. 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power that the universe came about by chance. Sir Frederick Hoyle, who was not a Christian, said, it's akin to saying that a tornado sweeping through your backyard could assemble a Boeing 747 out of the raw material there. Someone else said it parallels saying that a dictionary came about because of an explosion at a printing press. The probabilities are so low that it's almost impossible. Combine that with the recent theories in physics, the Big Bang model, which has replaced all the other models, the singularity exploding and creating the complexity of the cosmos that we now experience, that we now see, with all of the radiation, the background radiation that we've been able to discover that validates the theory, and you basically have the starting point of the universe and the ability to sustain rationally or from an intellectual standpoint, the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is a very unique book. It speaks to the various areas and dimensions of life. It speaks about philosophy, theology, literature, history, science, and a host of other areas. In fact, archaeologists used the Old Testament as a guide for all their excavations in the early part of the 20th century. There is so much that we can talk about in terms of the rational dimension of our faith. Let me just take the book of prophecy for lack of time. You look at the book of Zechariah, and it tells you about the death of Christ. You look at the book of Isaiah, and it tells you about the birth of Christ in explicit detail. You look at the book of Daniel, and it talks about a massive empire that will be divided into four, and the four will merge into two, and the two will merge into one. Bruce Metzger, one-time professor at Princeton, said, if you take that material 
and put it onto Alexander the Great Proforma. You see Alexander the Great being cut off in his stridency in his early 20s. And you see his massive empire being divided into four, given to his four generals. Those four merge into the two, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucan. And those two merge into the one, the Roman Empire. Every single line of prophecy validated and comes to pass in the course and in the stream of human history with complete accuracy. Scholars are of the opinion that the New Testament has a 99.6% accuracy. There are about 20,000 lines that compose the New Testament, and at best, only about 40 lines are in dispute. Compare that to Homer's Iliad, with about 15,000 lines and about 800 lines in dispute. And we have more documents of the New Testament than any other document in the ancient world, or book from the ancient world basically speaks to the authenticity of the Bible, but more importantly, to the authenticity of the, of the person to whom the Bible points to, the very person of Christ. Why am I going through all of this? Because I want you to understand that we do have a rational faith. Our faith has a cognitive element, but don't rationalize the faith. You see, there will always, please hear me, there will always be elements of your faith, of your spiritual walk with Christ that transcend mere reason. There will always be elements of your faith that transcend your ability and my ability to understand or comprehend because you and I worship a God, you and I serve a God who says my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. There are always elements in our faith that transcend mere cognition and mere reason. A young man had just graduated from the university and he was feeling rather smart. He was sitting under a big tall oak tree and he looked up to the heavens and he said, You know God, if I had your intellect, if I had your intelligence and your infinite capacity, I would have designed this universe in a different way. Some of the design plans here don't make any sense to me. And he said, let me give you an example. You see these small plants here? They're bearing huge watermelons. Small plants bearing huge watermelons. But this big tall oak tree that I'm sitting under is bearing small little nuts. It makes no sense to me. Small little plants bearing huge watermelons and this big tall oak tree that I'm sitting under is bearing small little nuts. And he kept going on and on talking about it. As he kept talking, a small nut fell from the tree and hit him on his head. He looked up and he said, thank God that wasn't a watermelon. You see, from the nut to the watermelon, the divine designer has orchestrated the various events and the realities in your life. He weaves them together as only he can to bring his purposes to pass. And everything that I understand, I understand. And everything that I don't understand, I look up to him and say, you are God and I am not. I cast my life into your hands. May your will be done for your glory. Let's not rationalize the faith. Let's be aware that we worship a God whose reality transcends anything and everything that we experience within the limitations and the dimensions of time and space. But we continue, we continue 
to rationalize him. She called him a Jew and she categorized him. She called him sir and she moralized him. She called him prophet and she rationalized him. Finally, they've been talking for a while now. She finally looks at him and says, where is God in all of this? My people say he's on this mountain. Your people say he's on that mountain. I really don't know where God is. And she demonized him. She demonized him. Where is God within the crucible of my experience? You don't know my life. All the failures, all the disappointments, all the defeats, the mountains of impossibilities, the valleys of despair that I've walked. Despair for me is not just a moment, it's a lifetime. I experience it every moment, every day, every minute of my life. Where is God in all of this? You're telling me about a God who loves me with an everlasting love. A love that never ends, a love that never changes. But where is God in the experiences of my life? Where is God in all of this? Maybe you've asked that question in your own life. I've asked that question numerous times. Where are you, God? I don't see you. I don't experience you. In the agonies of my life, in the despair that I experience on a constant basis, where are you in all of this? Even if you're able to make sense of life to some extent, it all seems to come to naught because it all ends in death. The common denominator of human existence. Albert Camus once said, death is philosophy's fundamental problem. Well, death is humanity's fundamental problem. If I was to take all the agonies and all the pain of life, and put it into one word for lack of time, it would be this word, death. The inevitability of death. I'm sure you've been to a funeral. I've been to many. As the body is lowered into the ground, as you walk away from the gravesite, there is a gnawing feeling in your heart and mind. Is this all there is to life? Is there hope beyond the grave? Is there a God who oversees all of this? What kind of confidence and assurance can he give me in the face of death? In the face of annihilation. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great preacher in the 1950s, a great illustrator, a great man of God. He lost his wife when she was only in her mid-30s to cancer. And he was driving to the funeral where he was going to preach with his two young daughters. And one of his daughters nudged her father in the car. And she said to him, Daddy, can I ask you something? He said, go ahead, honey. She looked at her father and she said, Daddy, I've heard you preach numerous times. I've heard you preach that Jesus died for our sins, Daddy. I've heard you preach numerous times that Jesus died for our sins. And this is my question for you. If Jesus really died for our sins, why did my mommy have to die? Can you answer that question for me, Daddy? If Jesus really died for our sins, why did my mommy have to die? Barnhouse didn't know what to say. This great preacher and Bible illustrator was dumbfounded. Right at that moment, an 18-wheeler, a big truck went by the car. Barnhouse held his daughter close and he said, Honey, do you see that truck? 
She said, yes, daddy. Barnhouse looked at her and he asked her, would you rather have that truck or its shadow run over you? The little daughter smiled and she said, the shadow, daddy, because it cannot hurt me. Barnhouse held his daughter close and he said to her, honey, you see the truck of death ran over our Lord Jesus Christ so that now only its shadow runs over us. Your mother has not been overcome by death, but by its shadow there is nothing, there is nothing to fear. The one who conquered hell, death, and the grave declares with authority and with power into your life and into my life because I live, you also shall live. That's the assurance he gives us. That's the confidence he gives us this morning. Bishop Candler was on his deathbed, a great man of God, and a young seminarian sneaked into the room. He was about to die just a few moments from death. The young seminarian sat by his side, took him by his hand, and he said, Dear Bishop, please tell me the truth. Please tell me the truth. It's just you and me, and I'll keep it confidential. I need to know the truth. Just say it to me. Do you fear crossing the river of death? Please tell me the truth, Bishop. It's just you and me. The bishop looked at him, and he smiled, and he said, Why should I? I belong to a father who owns both sides of the river. I belong to a father who owns both sides of the river. George Stuart Young once said, And on that morn, the bars of death asunder, he broke and rose triumphant o'er the grave, at last to show for all the world to ponder his mighty power, his mighty power from sin and death to save. He gives us that confidence by placing it Eternity, eternity in our hearts. C.S. Lewis once said, If you live only for this world, you will lose this world and the next. But if you live for the world to come, you will gain this world and the next. A God who has created you for life and life everlasting, for life beyond the grave. There is nothing to fear. You may have come here to this morning. and There are many questions in your heart and in your mind. Many issues, many things that you deal with. I often remember the story about a little boy who was trying to escape from a fire. The house had caught on fire and he was on the second floor. And all he could see was the fire and the smoke. And his father was down below on the ground crying out to him, Jump, son, and I'll catch you. Jump, and I'll catch you. I won't let you go. But all he could see, all that little boy could see was the fire and the smoke. And he cried back to his father, Daddy, Daddy, I'm not able to see you. I'm not able to see you at all. And the father responded back by saying, But I can see you. But I can see you. And that's all that matters. Jump into the safety of my outstretched arms. There is someone here who needs to hear that this morning. God sees you right where you are. In your life, in the midst of your situations and circumstances, in the midst of your struggles and your hurts, in the midst of those disappointments and those things that didn't work out, he sees you right where you are and he loves you 
just because of who you are. But we continue to categorize him. We moralize him. We rationalize him. And we demonize him. And God is looking to you and I this morning. And he's saying to us, when, when will you yield your life to me? Every dimension, every arena, every aspect, every part of your life so that I can bring my purposes to pass in and through you. Let me just conclude with a story that I heard in India many years ago. There was a little boy and little girl and they were playing together. The boy had a lot of marbles. She had a lot of candy. Being a good business major at his young age, he went up to her and he said, if you give me all your candy, I'll give you all my marbles. The little girl innocently agreed. She went back to her room, put all the candy into a little plastic bag, and she brought it out to him, and she gave it to him, and she said, here is all my candy. He went back to his room, and the more he saw the marbles, the more he wanted to keep them. So he kept the best of his marbles under the pillow. He put the rest into a plastic bag, and he brought them out and gave it to her. And he lied to her, saying, these are all my marbles. That night when they went to bed, she was fast asleep, but he couldn't sleep a wink. Do you know why? He kept wondering all night. I wonder if she gave me all the candy. My dear friend, my dear brother, my dear sister, he has given his all to you. The question this morning is, have you, have you given your all to him? What are you holding back? What are you keeping away from him? What are you keeping under your pillow at night? What are you hiding from him? Lay yourself bare before him. Yield yourself to him. And he will do such a work in your life that you never thought was possible. Stop categorizing him. Stop moralizing him. Stop rationalizing him. And stop demonizing him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you once again for this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. Help us, Lord, to yield ourselves to you, each and every part of our lives. Help us to be broken and yielded so that you may have your way and your will in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray.